I was participating years ago in a Junior Olympics uh, wrestling clinic. Many of the best youth wrestlers from around the United States were there. And uh, our AAU coach was walking. I was with a bunch of kids, and our AAU coach was walking us through a, a, a new takedown. He was showing us a new kind of move. And all of a sudden, this stranger just came walking across in this, in this huge gym full of mats, came walking across. And when he entered the circle of our mat, everybody just froze and kind of kind of just hunkered down like that. Our coach smiled and looked really meek. And the guy looked at our coach, and, and the coach just stepped aside. And this stranger walked up, and he grabbed the two, the two guys that the coach was using to show the move. And he rearranged one of their hands. And he said, now, you need to put your hand here. You'll, you'll have better control when you do the roll if you'll, if you'll do it like this. And all the guys were just like, they, they were almost genuflecting. They were like bowing and squeaking out, thank you, thank you, as if they were in the presence of a king or something. It was just weird. And I watched the guy as he walked to the other mats, and he went all around the, the whole auditorium doing the same thing. He was correcting every little thing that was wrong. Went, everybody was deferring to him as if he had some great authority. So I'm wrestling with my sparring partner, and I said, who is that guy? He didn't have authority to override all these great coaches. And my partner, he, he tapped out. And he stepped back and looked at me and said, you blithering idiot. He said, that's Dan Gable. He has all the authority in the world and more. Now, just in case you don't know, Dan Gable is considered possibly the greatest wrestler to ever walk onto a mat. He won multiple national titles, world titles, Olympic titles. He never had a single point scored against him in Olympic competition. Okay. Suddenly, I was much more interested in that stranger's input, right? Oh, okay, I'll listen. And I told you that story because the people in Galilee have a very similar experience. Like me, they're blithering idiots. And they learn that Jesus is the greatest one to ever walk on this mat we call earth. In Mark chapter 1, they find out that Jesus has all the authority in the world and more. Open your Bible. Mark is the second book of your New Testament. Go to Mark chapter 1. And we're going to see the first signs that Jesus wields ultimate authority. Let's read uh, chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. They, Jesus and the people following him, went into Capernaum, his adopted hometown. And right away he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and began to teach. They were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them as one who had authority, not like the scribes. Jesus has authority over Scripture. By the way, that's the headline uh, in our notes. Uh, whether you're online with us, if you are, you can, you can go online and find the, the notes section there. If you're here in the auditorium, open up your bulletin. Inside, you'll see that headline, Jesus has authority over Scripture. Now, that doesn't mean that he violates Scripture, but rather he's over the text because he wrote it. I was recently privy to an interview with an incredibly talented, best-selling author, and she was answering questions from her fans, Right? And one of the strangest things was a couple of different times during this session, the fans would, they would couch a question as if to imply that the author had to do something. You know, well, of course, you, in the last book, you're going to have to do this because of da-da-da-da. And, and the author listened to this a few times, and finally she gave a brilliant response. She said something like this, I'm the writer. I must do whatever I think best. I'm cognizant of the reader's wishes, yet I cannot forget that I am in charge, close quote. Scribes like me are under the authority of God's text. Jesus is not. As God the Son, he is the author. So he teaches differently than anybody else. 
Earlier in chapter 1, we noted two passive verbs that were used of Jesus, when he was baptized and when he was tempted. For those of us who were with us last time, notice the contrast between that and this. There's nothing passive now. He teaches with authority. And there's another facet of Mark we need to revisit from that introduction message. Um, And that's the conflict in the book. In case you don't know, Mark is a gospel that is full of tension and conflict. You can feel it in this text. Jesus is the true authority, and he is being revealed. Everyone always thought the scribes and the priests, that, that they were the big deal coaches on the mat. But the genuine power is being uncovered in Messiah Jesus. The only modern parallel that I can find is the TV show Undercover Boss um, from the early 21st century, Undercover Boss. The the scenarios are set up where the people working don't know that this dude laboring next to them is actually the CEO. That's a little akin to what those interacting with Jesus are finding out here. Now, the analogy breaks down like analogies always do. But I want you to listen to something. The theme music for that modern show is fascinatingly fitting for this biblical adventure. There's great tension. This is almost worthy of Mark 1. Listen to the tension. Go ahead and hit it, guys. Theme music for Undercover Boss. You hear the the tension? There are going to be some low notes thrown in here in a minute that, that almost depict the heaviness of the real boss being on the scene. Hear it? Okay, that'll do. That's good. All right. Like the bosses in that show, Jesus is being revealed in his power. Unlike them, he's completely wonderful. He's so awesome. He's so great, in fact. The Galileans, you see the word? They're astonished. Jesus has authority over Scripture. He also has authority over spirits. Look at the next verse, verse 23. Just then a man with an unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent. Come out of him. And the unclean spirit threw him into convulsions, shouted with a loud voice, and came out of him. They were all amazed. And so they began to ask each other, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him at once. The news about him spread throughout the entire vicinity of Galilee. When you visit Capernaum in Israel, and I I hope everyone gets to. It is astounding to stand on the spot where this occurred. Um, the actual level is this basalt down here. That's the level of the, of the synagogue in Jesus' day. This is newer. That's very new. That was built in the second century. It's, it's practically brand new. Um, but, but nonetheless, you're standing in the spot when this happens. And this, this demon cries out in a Hebrew idiom. Now, it doesn't translate. The sentences you see the, the demons say, they don't translate easily. In fact, they don't even translate into the Greek that Mark uses very well. They're, they're a Hebrew, they're a Hebrew uh, euphemism for when two opposing forces are clashing. Okay, that's what, that's what he's saying. And, and, and it's more than that. It implies that one of them is going to crush the other. So if I'm talking about a football game and I say, oh, that team is going to get nuked. What? They're not literally going to be nuclear bombed in the middle of the game. What am I saying when I say they're going to get nuked? They're, they're going to be smashed. They're going to, they're going to be really beaten and destroyed. Okay, that's a little like these odd-sounding sentences from this demon. He asks, Jesus, are you going to immediately nuke us? And Jesus says, be muzzled. And the demon is cast out of time space. Jesus has power over demons. 
That's why they're all amazed and astounded. He teaches the Bible like he's the author. He controls mighty beings who are in a dimension we can't even see. He also has power over sickness. Go to verse 29. Still on that same Sabbath day in Capernaum, as soon as they left the synagogue, they went into Simon and Andrew's house with James and John. Uh, Simon's mother-in-law was lying in bed with a fever, and they told him about her at once. So he went to her, took her by the hand, and raised her up. The fever left her, and she began to serve them. Now, we know that the earliest churches, because we have a lot of their sermons, they taught on this miracle a lot. Um, this is the briefest or one of the briefest of all the healing miracles in the Bible, but it really fascinated our forefathers. L let me show you why. They really liked this miracle because it is a microcosm of biblical egalitarianism, not worldly egalitarianism. That's, that's different. Biblical egalitarianism shows that women and men matter equally to Jesus. They equally are important to him. This is a picture of things to come. He raised her up. You see that he raised her up? That is the exact same phrase that is used elsewhere in the New Testament for the resurrection that awaits every single person who believes in Jesus. It's really awesome. They liked teaching on this miracle because it's an introduction to Christian service. When she is healed, what does Peter's mother-in-law do? Automatically, what does she do? She, she gets up and serves. The same is supposed to be true of us. If you are healed by belief in Jesus Christ, if you are made whole in Him as a believer, you're not supposed to be sitting on your fanny. You're supposed to be serving. The story shows Jesus' power. Isn't it interesting the sickness isn't mentioned? We don't know what made her sick, but Jesus is mentioned. The point is that no illness, and here I'm going to quote from a guy named uh, John Chrysostom, no illness, not even death, has permanent power over Jesus' people. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. There's a fourth statement of Jesus' authority in, in this text. He has power over sinners. Now, this one doesn't occur directly on that remarkable Sabbath, but it's still part of the Capernaum pericope, the, the, the story in Capernaum. So, since it's still part of this, this section, we're going to skip down and read it now. So, go down to Mark chapter 2. Okay, so slide down to Mark chapter 2, and let's read verses 13 through 15. 13 through 15. Jesus went out again by the sea. We'll get the part in between in a moment. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then, passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. While he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. Let's stop there. We're going to talk about tax gatherers and other despised sinners in a moment. For now, just please notice the big idea in this passage that we just read is Jesus' authority over sinners. Dietrich Bonhoeffer commented on this really well. Look at his quote. I put this in our notes. I liked it so much. In Cost of Discipleship, he said, This encounter with Levi is a testimony to the absolute, direct, and unchecked authority of Jesus. Because Jesus is the Christ, He has the authority to call and demand obedience to His Word. Jesus summons men to follow Him, not as a teacher or a pattern of the good life, but as the Christ, the Son of God. Amen. Now, Let's go back up to where we were, and let's read a great summary statement. All these different aspects of Jesus' authority. Summary statement, starting in verse 32. When evening came, after the sun set. So, that means the Sabbath that we were on has ended, right? The Sabbath goes from sundown to sundown. So, after the sun had set, <clears throat> they brought him all those who were sick and demon-possessed. The, the whole town was assembled at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases, drove out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. 
Mike tidily summarizes here, I think, all four things that are revealed about Jesus in Capernaum. He has authority over Scripture, over spirits, over sinners, and over sickness. Now, the Scripture part is subtle. It's actually contained in the question everybody asks. Everybody reads this passage, and they ask, everybody asks the same question. Why muzzle the demons? I mean, if they're the only ones who really understand who he is, why not let them shout it out? Isaiah actually explained why. Way back in Isaiah 50, really sharp contrast. Let's look at Isaiah 50, verses 10 and 11. Verse 10 of Isaiah 50 says, Who among you fears the Lord and listens to his servant? Who among you walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord. Let him lean on his God. Now, contrast that with verse 11. Look, all you who kindle a fire, who encircle yourselves with torches, walk in the light of your fire and of the torches you have lit. This is what you'll get, says God, from my hand. You will lie down in a place of torment. Remember, parallelism is always the key to Isaiah's genius. When you're reading Isaiah, look for the parallels. Now, you got a parallel here, a contrast. On the one hand are the verse 10 people. They fear the Lord. They listen to his servant, the great coach, the one who has authority. By the way, when you see, when you see his servant in the, in the prophets, that that's, that's means the Messiah. That, that's talking about this great one to come, the Messiah. These people in verse 10 admit that they walk in darkness. They bring nothing to the table. They have no light. They have no insight. They recognize their own incapacity. And they can lean on God in trust, and they don't fall. By contrast are the verse 11 people. These people try to figure everything out for themselves, right? They, they listen to other voices than God's, and, they, and, and, and they, they gather or research or quite often make up uh, their, own, their own ideas. And then they walk in light of that wisdom. They walk in their own light. Beautiful phrase from Isaiah. They, they trust themselves in their own wisdom only. They will fall into torment. This is why Jesus is not completely understood as, as God the Son, Messiah, the, the Son of God, Son of Man, until after his resurrection. The light had to come from God alone, not from any human construct. Jesus inspired Isaiah chapter 50. He silences the demons because they're trying to circumvent Scripture. They're trying to give light that isn't directly from the Lord's servant. Why do they do that? Because they want as many as possible to join them in torment. And that's the point in Mark chapter 1. Jesus has power as the author of Scripture. He has power over sickness and spirits. He must be listened to. Not demons, not humans who pretend to have light. Jesus has all authority. All God's people said. He also sets the best agenda. That's why Isaiah used the word walk. Walk implies the agenda, the, the living of life. Um, Jesus blazes the right trail. As we say it on the right side of your notes, Jesus sets the best agenda. Let's look at the next section, verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he, Jesus, got up, went out, and made his way to a deserted place. And there he was praying. Simon and his companions searched for them, and when they found him, they said, everyone is looking for you. Here's the start of Jesus' agenda. He prioritizes time in prayer. Notice how he made his way to a deserted place. Yes, one can and should pray anywhere. Yes, you can talk to God anytime about anything, anywhere. But there is something particularly useful about engaging with God in peace and quiet. And finding such quiet space is a skill that we desperately need today. 
Look, if you live in a developed area anywhere around the world, think about this. You almost always have music or human voices in the background. Almost always. With your TV on at home, in the car with your radio, at the store, at every restaurant, as you jog, as you ride transport, you have either got sound pumped directly into your ears or it is always playing in the air around you. Now, that doesn't mean that music and podcasts are bad. Especially not if you're listening to this podcast. But those things can be good. But there is a role for quiet. Quiet provides sanity. And its lack in our lives directly affects our lack of praying. Simon Peter and the others, look at them. They, they cannot imagine not responding to people first. The most important them, to them is the, the, the fame, the excitement of being in demand. Everybody's looking for you. That's what matters to them. Thank goodness we're not like that. We never prioritize human likes over quiet talking with God, do we? Just ask yourself this simple question. Which is more? The time I spend concerned with people's reaction to me or the time I spend talking directly to God? Which is more? Now, even as Jesus prioritizes time with God, don't get the wrong idea. It's not that he doesn't care about people. He does not ignore people. The next section shows how he cares for all people. Uh, Read verse 38, 38 and uh, 39. Next verses. He said to them, Let's go on to the neighboring villages so that I may preach there too. This is why I have come. He went into all of Galilee preaching in their synagogues and driving out demons. Jesus cares for all. He doesn't only care for his adopted hometown of Capernaum. He goes into other towns and there he displays the same care he did in Capernaum. He offers the same good news. He shows his authority there as well. Jesus cares for all, even the unclean. Go to the next verse, 40. Then a man with leprosy came to him and on his knees begged him, If you're willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Then Jesus sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go and show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet he went out and began to proclaim it widely and to spread the news with the result that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but he was out in deserted places and they came to him from everywhere. Jesus cares so much that he reaches out and touches a leper. That is incredible. Jesus is the author of the Mosaic laws about not touching the unclean. And yet he makes contact with the power of God and heals this man completely. Jesus knows the leprosy cannot jump to him. Rather, messianic cleanness jumps from him to the one in need. Every single culture, every single one since the fall of mankind has had its lepers, right? For sometimes understandable reasons, there are people in every single society who are relegated to the outside, the unclean. Who are yours? Who are your lepers? In the United States of America today... I would say that uh, Antifa anarchists and KKK members are very, very unwelcome. They are considered dangerous, and polite people don't want anything to do with them. In Africa, uh, when I've been there, the mentally ill are very often ostracized. In Europe, the morbidly obese are very rarely touched. They are judged quite harshly. In Asian churches, communists are avoided. Communists are not 
allowed for understandable reasons to even come in contact with the believers in Christ. Who are your lepers? Jesus loves them. Jesus reaches out to them anyway. Those who follow him should do the same. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus' followers take the leprosy. They, they, don't, they don't engage with the sin if it's a sin issue. But they do reach out to all with the healing message of the Messiah. Now, we'll get to the leper's reaction in a moment. For now, let's just continue with Jesus' compassion. He cares. He cares for all who come in faith. Go to verse 1 of chapter 2. When he entered Capernaum again after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So many people gathered together, there was no more room, not even in the doorway. And he was speaking the word to them. They came to him by bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they were not able to bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and after digging through it, they lowered the mat on which the paralytic was lying. Seeing their faith, Jesus told the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, you could and, and probably should study this one paragraph all day. But we're, we're learning here the way that Mark wrote, with breathless immediacy and wonder. So we're going to limit our mining of this, this paragraph to one big nugget. This is all about faith. This guy and his fantastic friends, they came looking for physical healing. They, they removed the typical clay tiles. They dug through the thatch of the roof, and they lowered their friend to Jesus through the, the dirt. But, but in Mark's account, Jesus doesn't respond with any comment about physical healing at all. He doesn't even speak to their works. He sees their faith. They trusted Jesus to do what needs done. And I think Mark's rendering is brilliant. This is written in Romanesque prose. It's very terse. It happens quickly. There's no need to give all the details. We know the guy is physically healed. We know his friends rejoiced. But what matters, what's recorded for us, is that Jesus recognized those who came to him in faith. And he applied their sins to his own account. When he says, I forgive... What he's saying is that he agrees to take those sins on him and pay for them at the cross. That is something only God could do. Jesus cares for people, everyone who comes to him in faith, no matter their position or past. Okay, for just a moment, let's get back to the Levi story where he called Levi. Go, go back. We're going to pick it up where we were before. Go to verse 13. Jesus went out again by the sea. The whole crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. Then passing by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the toll booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he got up and followed him. While Jesus was reclining, he was reclining at the table in Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who were following him. When the scribes, who were Pharisees, saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he told them, It is not those who are well who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. This is a lot like the leper story. Tax collectors were extremely unpopular for very good reason. If you don't know, Roman tax collectors, publicans they were called, they, they fleeced the people. They used gray areas of the law to make life really hard, especially on small businesses. <laughs> Thank goodness our governments never do that. Um, Seriously, even Illinois is not as bad as the Roman tax collectors of the first century. Um, that's why nobody talked to publicans. Nobody spoke to tax gatherers. Now, please don't misunderstand that. Those people could not have shunned a tax collector any more than you can just ignore letters from the IRS, right? 
You, you have to deal with the tax gatherer. But what happened was, once you had finished your business, there was no small talk, there was no interaction. You had as little to do with them as possible, and you got away. Only really rough sinners spent any time in a tax collector's company until Messiah Jesus came along. Jesus doesn't care about their publican position. He doesn't care about their sordid past, these sinners. Anybody who will follow him is granted the opportunity to do so. If you want to think about this more, I, I recommend to you a sermon that was given here in the summer of 2020. Uh, George Hillman preached a great message on this aspect of Jesus' love. He called it the reset button. I, I recommend it to you. Jesus is amazing. He has ultimate authority. He sets the best agenda, prayer and care. And Jesus fights the right battles. All right, let's close out this Capernaum section with this emphasis. Jesus fights the right battles. He instructs to show scriptural integrity. We saw this when Jesus told that leper to, to just quietly go obey the law. Let's go back to that leper's reaction when Jesus healed him. Go back to chapter 1, verse 43. <clears throat> then he sternly warned him and sent him away at once, telling him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer what Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Why tell him that? I see two reasons that I can discern in the text. First, Jesus is the fulfiller of the law of Moses. Through Moses, God gave Israel very specific instructions about how you were supposed to rejoice in the occasion of a leper being cleansed of leprosy. That law became finished in Jesus, but it is still to be regarded as God's Word that teaches truth. And especially here before the cross, it's very important that Scripture be followed. That way, that way what Jesus does in fulfilling the law can be understood. It becomes a testimony. Jesus is not a revolutionary. He is not an anarchist. He is a fulfiller, a completer, a defender of Scripture. Second reason Jesus tells the leper to quietly obey the law comes from what we discussed earlier. Remember the, remember the contrast in Isaiah chapter 50? The contrast between the verse 10 people, those who fear the Lord, they listen to His servant. They admit they, they have nothing to offer. They, they, they are... They are children in their thinking. As Solomon said it so beautifully, I, 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 go, I don't know how to go out or come in. And, and they lean on God and they do not fall. And that was contrasted with the people who think that they're well. Those who know they're sick versus those who think they're well. They try to figure everything out for themselves. They, they, they make up their own little, little sustenance and, and, and religion. They, they walk in their own wisdom, so to speak, and they will fall into torment. This leper... Babbling about Messiah is putting everybody in Capernaum at risk. You see, he, he's setting up a potential mess where people can build their own religion instead of listening to God's Word, His living Word, Jesus. This, isn't, this is not like what's going to happen later. Later, Jesus is going to send His followers out directly to take His gospel to the world. That's great. This kind of experience-based, undirected emotion, you know what it leads to? It leads to unbiblical religion. And Americans, North and South Americans, your continents have proven especially prone to fall on the torment side of this ledger. I don't know quite what it is, but North and South Americans are geniuses at making up all kinds of religions that have just enough Jesus sprinkled on them that people can't really see the human control aspects that are behind it all. So in North and South America, you have Jehovah's Witness comes to, to bear, and, and prosperity gospel theology, and unbiblical, wild, charismatic, extra-biblical uh, worship, and, and liberation theology, and Mormonism. 
These are all exactly what happens when, when you don't stand for scriptural integrity, when people try to take a little bit of Jesus and they devise their own thing instead of sticking to God's word. Jesus fights for scriptural integrity, and it's the right battle. Jesus' second battle worth fighting concerns his person. He heals to show that he is deity. This is, this is evident when he tells the scribes who he is, right? How many, how many of you like movies? How many of you like movies? Raise your hands if you like movies. Okay, uh, good. A friend of mine's a screenwriter. Old friend of mine, she's a screenwriter. And uh, we were talking about her craft one time. And <clears throat> she said the hardest part of her job is developing a character through a very, very brief space. She said, she said when a novelist develops a character, they can use all kinds of, of situations and scenes where the character reveals to the audience, shows you who that character really is, what, what they're really all about at their core. But when you're doing it in a movie, you've got to do it very, very briefly. You only have a scene to do it in. And, uh, and one of the examples that we talked about, whether you like them or not, one of the examples we talked about was the best-selling author of, of our time is J.K. Rowling. And she wrote a book, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, and she developed this guy, Newt Scamander. And, and she, in the book, developed him in a whole lot of different ways. But then they asked J.K. Rowling to write the screenplay. And she brilliantly realized in a screenplay, she didn't have that same kind of space. She had to develop the character very quickly, right? So, so here's what she did. She made a scene of Newt as a, as a boy when he was at school. And in this one scene where he has to face a thing called a boggart that is designed to scare you, in this one scene, we learn a great deal about Newt. Look, look and listen. That's an unusual one. So, Mr. Scamander fears what more than anything else in the world? Having to work in an office, sir. <laughs> Go ahead, Newt. Scariest thing to him is working in an office, so the boggart takes that and he Ridiculous. says... And he makes it look ridiculous. Okay. Good job, Lisa. Very good. All right. The, 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 the point is we learned in that one little, that was 12 seconds long, in that one little scene we learned that this is an outdoorsy guy. This is an animal guy. He didn't want to be in an office. We also learned that he's very powerful in this fantasy story. He's very powerful. He can turn that thing into something that is fantastic and different. Okay? That is a little bit like Mark. That is close to what's happening in Mark. Here's how Mark describes it. He records a conflict between Jesus and the Bogarts. I mean, I mean the, the Pharisees. Um, chapter 2, verse 6. Go to verse 6. But some of the scribes, this is right after he heals the paralytic, and or after he says your sins are forgiven. Some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does he speak like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Right away, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking like this within themselves and said to them, why are you thinking these things in your heart? I would love to have seen their faces when he said that. Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he told the paralytic, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he got up, took the mat, and went out in front of everyone. As a result, they were all astounded and gave glory to God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. Now, there's no other way to put this. Jesus throws down here right in the face of the religious leaders. This is a gauntlet slap to the face. He knows what they're thinking, and he absolutely jumps in to fight them. He goes out of his way to make sure everyone there knows that he is God. When the crowd glorifies God, they're glorifying Jesus. The Pharisees are right, by the way. Only God can forgive sins. 
So Jesus proves he's God by healing and forgiving sins. The very name he uses of himself shows this. Look, son of man. You see that Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. The term comes from a vision that's recounted in Daniel chapter 7. Daniel in chapter 7 is allowed to see this vision of the future. And he sees a person. It's a human person. And this person is high and exalted with the Ancient of Days. But this person is traveling on the clouds. Now, in Hebraic literature, no one, no one, no one is ever described as traveling on the clouds except for God himself. So Daniel is saying that this person is also God. And he makes up a name for this person. He calls him the Son of Man. That's the title Jesus applies to himself. He's the one seen by Daniel. There is absolutely no one in Capernaum who could possibly have missed what he's saying here. He is claiming godhood. By the way, in Mark, just so, this is free. Just a little aside for you. Um, for when you're studying the Gospel of Mark on your own, I'll just lay this out for you. There's three ways that Jesus uses Son of Man in the Gospel of Mark, okay? In chapters 1 and 2, what we've just studied, he talks about, he calls himself Son of Man in situations to display his deity, his authority on earth, okay? Then a number of times, chapters 8 and 9 and 10 and 14, he's going to use the term Son of Man to show that he is God, he is deity in his suffering and his death and his resurrection. That's really important because this is not just some human being who dies, it just happens to be brought, but this is God himself acting. And then the third way he uses the Son of Man is to describe his glorious return. And he does that three times as well. Jesus, let me just put it this way. Here's one of the most important things you'll ever hear. Jesus is God. That's why he heals the paralytic. It's not because that dude or his friends followed some pagan formula. They didn't, they didn't purchase anything the guy is made well because Jesus is deity, period. Like scriptural theology, Jesus' character is worth battling for. Jesus is the Son of Man, both human and God the Son. All God's people said? Now, you may be asking after all this, you may be asking in your, um, in your exhausted wrestler imitation, so what? So, so Jesus is all that great stuff. I mean, he, he, he fights the right battles. He sets the best agenda. Uh, he has great authority. How does that help me? Right? Great question. Great question. Remember Dan Gable? The guy I told you about who did all things well on the mat? Well, he went on to become the most successful wrestling coach in history. Listen to this. Before Gable started coaching at Iowa University... Oklahoma State and Iowa State had controlled NCAA wrestling. They had won nearly every one of the NCAA championships for decades and decades and decades. Gable became head coach at Iowa in 1976. Iowa had never won the national championship. They won 15 over the next 20 years. 15 over the next 20 years. And then after he retired from that, some of his protégés took over, and they've continued to win more and more. People from Minnesota, I know it makes you angry. Don't write me, all right? Because Coach Gable did all things well on the mat, his teams listened to him. They wrestled like him, and they won. 1875, Francis Crosby was, was thinking through this same question that we just asked. What does this do for me? Fanny Crosby was thinking about, what difference does it make for me that Jesus is so amazing? And she penned a poem. She put her thoughts together in this poem. All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt his tender mercy, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, here by faith in him to dwell. For I know, whatever befall me, read the last line with me, everybody, ready? 
Jesus doeth all things well. Because Jesus does everything perfectly, I trust him. Because I accept his guidance, I have peace and comfort, and I can follow him in doing all things well. Amen? All right, with that in mind, let's respond to our Mark text. First, let's commit to battle. Let's battle for the two things Jesus felt worthy of defending. He stood for Scripture. He stood for his person. That's what we should do. That doesn't mean that we pick fights over little nuances of doctrine. It does mean that we arm ourselves to defend the Bible as the words of God and Jesus as the incarnate word of God. That's why many of you are, are working through apologetic works like, like these ones. And, of course, there are many others. These are, good, these are good tools. They help us discern and defend the truth about Scripture and Savior. But, of course, and I hope you know this, nothing prepares us as well as scripture memorization. When God's text is implanted in my mind, it allows me to kindly and firmly battle against those who would erode either scripture or the Son of Man. So let's grab a verse from today. Um, Mark 2.10. Say that with me on the count of three. Say Mark 2.10. One, two, three. Mark 2.10. Let's do it again. Mark 2.10. Now say the verse with me. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. It's a claim of deity. And power in your life. Write this in, write this in your brain. Let's say it all together from the top. Mark 2.10. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Again, Mark 2.10. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Close your eyes. Now say it again. Mark 2.10. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Close your eyes if you're at home. Mark 2.10. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. All right, open your eyes, everybody, including you at home. All right? That's how we follow the Lord in battle. We cement in our hearts that He is God. Let's also follow the Lord in care. Remember, we saw Him care. Let's do the same. You know, humans tend to be very tribal. So, somewhat understandably, we don't trust strangers who walk into our circle, right? We don't trust others. Therefore, we don't actively care for them. But Jesus did. He went beyond Capernaum with his care. Human beings always avoid lepers. Cancel culture is nothing new, right? But Jesus reaches out and touches the, the left out ones, the lost ones, even though that could harm his perceived image. And even Christians, even within a fellowship, Christians tend to judge other Christians and we do it by their position or their past. Jesus does not. He takes everyone who comes to him by faith. If you're willing, I have an assignment for you. I, I have found this exercise very helpful to me. I recommend it to you. Write down the name of one weirdo whom you fear or cannot stand. Okay, write it down. In your little journal, whatever you keep, write it down. And then pray for that person. I know. I know you, You'll start by praying about that person. I, I, me too. I understand that. And you'll pray about them for some time. And you'll, you'll try to pray for them, but then you're just praying about them because they're so strange and so scary. But I guarantee you that if you keep it up, you will find without even wanting to, you will be praying for them. And there comes a moment when the Spirit reveals to you, you feel very strongly that you are ready. And when you're ready, I would like you to do this. Sincerely ask that other what you can do for him. Okay? I have a second assignment for you in this aspect of following Jesus in care. Write down a sin pattern that you find very difficult to stomach. For me, it's objectification of women. 
That one, that one really angers me. It, for good, it's good, it's a good thing, but I find that it makes me very, very wall-building, very judgmental. Somebody has objectified women, has not even fought the battle of pornography, has, uh, has committed adultery, has uh, raped. Um, I, I, these, things, these things lead me back to my childhood in ranching and wanting to get out the calipers we used on calves. Right? I have found it's very important for me to pray for my fellow Christians, and they are many, who have committed that sin. Men and women who have objectified human beings whom God made in his image and for whom he died. And I need to pray for that. I need to love them and pray for them. Does that make sense? What's yours? What's your, what's your leprosy that you just can't get over? I guarantee you someone in your vast body of brethren in Christ is guilty of that sin. Pray for them. Speaking of prayer, I have one last application for us. I have a last challenge for you. I'd like you to take four hours, four hours, and test yourself in this way. Go without any electronic or auditory stimulation for four hours. I know, teenagers, just take a breath. It's okay. I want you to just sit in quiet for four hours. If you're able, I really recommend getting outside. We have beautifully quiet and, and still wild spaces up here in our church in the country. Feel free to drive up here. Bring a blanket. Spread it out. Sit. Think. Pray. Br bring, your, um, bring your Amy Coney Barrett blank pad of paper and, uh, and a pen and write a little bit. And if you will take this challenge, I think... I think you'll find it very transformative, but I, I would also like to warn you what it'll be like. I've, I've done this myself a number of times. I have, I have instructed staff to do this a number of times, and it tends to follow this pattern. When you take the four-hour challenge, the first 30 minutes are so refreshing. It's just, ha, ah, just you write and you pray, and it's just so nice to be in quiet. And then the next two and a half hours drive you absolutely insane, just bonkers. You run out of things to talk to God about. It's like, I, 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 I ticked off all, there's nobody, I'm, I just prayed for my second cousin's cat. I've got nothing left, right? You get tired and you fall asleep, you'll fall asleep and you feel guilty and you wake up and you try to write, but you keep thinking of things you need to buy at Walmart on the way home and you can't write anymore and you just, ah, you're just going bonkers. Why did I do this? It's stupid. And then the last hour, almost always the last hour is, is just magical. You really relax. You realize that you were a lot more tense than you thought you were. You begin to really pray. You begin to really cry and really rejoice and really engage with God. And when, and when your alarm goes off that the four hours are over, it's kind of shocking. You're like, how did, how did that last hour go so fast? That's the power of prayer in quiet. Speaking of which, let's pray. Pray with me. Father, I pray for myself and my brothers and sisters in Christ that we will care for everyone, that we will be committed to and changed by prayer, and that our prayer and care won't mean that, we, that we're, that we're empty-headed ninny-muggins. We, we, uh, we, we stand for things. We want to fight the battles that you fought, and we ask you to empower us to understand and fight for Scripture and for Savior. We ask you to use us to help change us and our church and your world. In Jesus' name, amen.